Hello, America. Hello. The First Lady and I wish each and every one of you a happy Independence Day on this truly historic 4th of July. As we gather this evening, in the joy of freedom, we remember that all share a truly extraordinary heritage. Together, we are part of one of the greatest stories ever told, the story of America. It is the epic tale of a great nation whose people have risked everything for what they know is right and what they know is true. It is the chronicle of brave citizens who never give up on the dream of a better and brighter future. And it is the saga of 13 separate colonies that united to form the most just and virtuous republic ever conceived. Hi, I'm Claire Erickson, multimedia and history lover, and I'm your host. In this series, we look at national narratives, stories, and symbols from different angles and perspectives in an attempt to understand the underlying structures of the world we live in. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of the contents of the American national narrative in order to better understand what a national narrative really is, and what lies behind the way it looks. This dive into one particular narrative will help us later in the series when we explore how these narratives and points of identification were created. We'll explore the question of how a nation so formally divided can appear so united in its historical narrative, and how Donald Trump's speeches have come to resonate with people all over the nation. I believe in the United States of America as a government of the people, by the people, for the people, whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed. A democracy in a republic, a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, a perfect union, one and inseparable, established upon the principles of freedom, equality, justice, and humanity for which American patriots sacrifice their lives and fortunes. I, therefore, believe it is my duty to my country to love it, to support its constitution, to obey its laws, to respect its flag, and to defend it against all enemies. This is what's called the American's Creed. It was written by William Tyler Page, a public servant on the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. in 1917. The text was submitted through a national contest for the creation of an American creed, by Google also defined as a system of belief, and adopted officially in a resolution passed in Congress on April 3rd, 1918. Supposedly, according to Page himself, The American's Creed is a summing up in 100 words of the basic principles of American political faith. It is not an expression of individual opinion upon the obligations and duties of American citizenship or with respect to its rights and privileges. It is a summary of the fundamental principles of American political faith as set forth in its greatest documents, its worthiest traditions, and by its greatest leaders. It's a summary of the fundamental principles of American faith as set forth in its greatest documents, its worthiest traditions, and by its greatest leaders. Strong words, these greatest, 
worthiest. Page has certainly, along with Congress and the official narrative, given greater value to some documents, traditions, and leaders than to others. Let's hear it again. I believe in the United States of America as a government of the people, by the people, for the people, whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed. A democracy in a republic, a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, a perfect union, one and inseparable, established upon the principles of freedom, equality, justice, and humanity, for which American patriots sacrificed their lives and fortunes. I, therefore, believe it is my duty to my country to love it, to support its constitution, to obey its laws, to respect its flag, and to defend it against all enemies. Cited in this 100-word poem, uh, yeah, I counted, are the authors of the American Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and the Oath of Allegiance, but also leaders like Abraham Lincoln, James Madison, Daniel Webster, and George Washington. What you're about to hear is a version of some of the canonically accepted as most important events, angles, and happenings in American history. Something which has been told, retold, and told again. It's what Onda was taught in Washington State Public School, Marlette in a private Catholic school in Maryland, and Izzy in an all-girls feminist charter school in Minnesota. Um, we don't really talk about anything until 1620. This is Onda. Um, the Mayflower left from Plymouth, England. Native to the evergreen forest of Washington State in the northwestern United States. And arrived in present-day Massachusetts next to a rock which is now called Plymouth Rock. And they then turned that area that they landed into Plymouth Colony. Um, really original. <laughs> and I think the Mayflower carried about 100 people over from England and they were um, I also don't know if they were the first, the actual first settlers, but they're recognized as um, the first group of Puritans that really started forming substantial colonies. She's one of my friends who've gone through the American school system. She and two others, Marlette and Izzy, will help guide us through the narratives of U.S. history. You'll also hear briefly from another friend of mine called Kobe, born in Louisiana but raised in Mississippi, but we'll get to that later. In I think it was 1621, they had what we now look back on as the first Thanksgiving, which was a feast between the Native Americans um, in Massachusetts and the Puritans that had come over from England. And it's presented in a very interesting way in history because we look back on that as there was a lot of collaboration, there was a lot of friendliness between the Native Americans and the Puritans. And at that point, maybe there was, I'm not sure, but no one really talks about what happened afterwards and all of the oppression that happened and um, the disease that was spread to the Native Americans and all of the land that was taken for them, from them. When you're growing up, you think that, what a wonderful thing, you know, the Native Americans shared with the Puritans, the Puritans shared with the Native Americans, and this is part of a whole value system of the U.S. now um, that ideally we're supposed to be grateful and um, reciprocal. Here's my life. You know, this, these are our roots. She grew up in Maryland, one of the original 13 colonies, where the colonial heritage and what was to come after was a big deal. We were people who were discriminated against in Europe, and so we came here and founded this new country as an escape in some way, even though we were still tied to the original um, yeah, European countries. 
as the years progressed, the colonists felt more and more isolated and alien to the motherland, the British Empire. Generations and generations of European immigrants had grown up without ever setting foot on the British Isles, and the royal orders being sent across the pond came with directives of higher taxation and stricter regulations for the people living in the colonies. Izzy learned one of the main slogans of the coming revolution. The colonists in the 13 colonies start getting a little rowdy, and they're like, Britain taxes us, but we're not represented. No taxation without representation. She grew up in urban Minnesota, in a diverse and liberal neighborhood in Minneapolis. The 13 colonies start to divide between um, revolutionaries and loyalists who want to kind of stay with the crown. Two years later, in 1775, um, the British had picked up on the fact that the people in their colonies weren't super happy, and they sent an army of we call them redcoats in history, and I, I don't know if that's a politically correct or b correct. Um, but they were over in 1775. So they fight a couple battles. Some of which have been featured in history more than others. Some names are thrown around a lot, like George Washington, James Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and this dude called Paul Revere. Paul Revere is one of the heroes of American history because he rode from. Charlestown, Massachusetts to Lexington, Massachusetts, I believe, um, through the night on a horse to warn everyone, the British are coming. And so that's a very famous line in American history, as you'll hear people say over and over, the British are coming, because um, supposedly without Paul Revere, the um, people from the colonies <laughs> wouldn't have been sufficiently warned. And so um, the British army was met with the Minutemen, who were um, local people of the unofficial army of the colonies of the U.S. Um, and they were able to stop the British before they got all the way to Concord, which is where they were trying to end up. Okay, so he actually didn't do that, but it's a catchy historical slogan, right? Makes for a great other in the British. The British are coming! Okay, let's move on. End of the war, the revolutionaries win, and... Um, and they put a lot of stress on, yeah, we won, it was hard because... We have no money compared to these powers. We have no formal army. It was a huge mess, but we knew the land and we had more of a reason to fight than they did because we were fighting for our freedoms and our livelihoods and they were just fighting to keep a little bit of extra money. Following that in 1776 was when our Declaration of Independence was signed because we dumped all of the tea and um, defeated an army. And I think in history, that's viewed as a very, very proud moment. Um, in U.S. history was there was no official army, there was no official government, and yet the people of the colonies were able to come together and um, defeat this so-called tyrannical rule from across the ocean. And I, I think that we're taught that that played into a lot of American values of being self-sufficient and independent and trying to, I guess, stand up for what you believe in. The Declaration of Independence was a document proclaiming the 13 colonies to be independent of the tyrannical rule of Britain. 56 representatives, or shall I say white men, from all 13 colonies signed the treaty. Dudes like John Hancock, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, but also six guys named William, John, George, and Thomas, respectively. Three Georges from Pennsylvania only. I would only be partially joking if I said that they were chosen for their names. Out of the 56 signers, only Abram and Caesar had non-British names, but their last names, Rodney and Clark, made up for it. 
More than half of the signers were lawyers, and the others were planters, merchants, and chippers. 34 of them owned slaves. To be non-British, non-white, non-male, and with humble means clearly left you outside the doors of this exclusive signing, which was to go to history as the foundation of America the Great. Then we won the war. Everyone was like, whoa, this is super cool. No one was expecting this. What the United States of America now had in front of it is what has, in history, been called the completely exceptional opportunity to accept a constitution through a revamped version of the old Greek democratic ideas, brought up through the Enlightenment waves of the 18th century. The Puritans who'd left the poor, tyrannical, war-written old world, Europe, now had succeeded in creating a free land, whose, in the words of the Declaration of Independence and Page in his American Creed, just powers were derived from the consent of the governed. There were a lot of compromises that had to be made, mostly because the southern economy, um, and by extension the northern economy, but especially the southern economy, completely revolved around slavery. So there were a lot of compromises around how much power states would have versus how much power the federal government would have, because it was also really the first federation. But within the next decade, we had the Constitution, as it still stands today, um, with new amendments, but the same document, the same basis of the document is very much the same. We the people in the United States of America in order to form And I think this is obviously a big point because in a lot of ways this was something that had never been done before, at least in Western uh, history. You know, this complete, not building off of hundreds of years of tradition, it was something brand new and trying to figure out the best way to go about this. And then comes the Civil War, which is obviously a big defining moment in American history. It's about, depending on who you ask, it's about secession or it's about slavery or it's about both, which I ascribe to the, the last of those options. So as you may have noticed, Marlette, Onda, and Izzy all come from northern U.S., with Marlette growing up right on the Dixie Line, the dividing border. And what Marlette just said... Depending on who you ask, it's about secession, or it's about slavery, or it's about both. Well, that's widely seen as a point of conflict in the historical narrative of the United States between North and South. Many argue that the perspectives which schools in the North has, that the Civil War was caused by slavery, is not the one presented in the South. I called up Kobe, a friend who I also roomed with for a while, to ask him some questions about it. I'm not going to say howdy, because we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> that'd be te- that'd be Texas. That'd be Texas. He's from the South originally. I do have a better one. We would say something like, "Hey y'all, hey y'all." I grew up actually mostly in Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, my family moved to Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina um, hit the the Gulf Coast. I don't particularly identify with either of them now. Um, I like to say that I'm from Louisiana because at least it has some good things about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we had some issues when recording, but I managed to ask him for the perspective on the Civil War, which was taught to him. So I asked if they're taught that the Civil War was about slavery. Totally. Totally. Like, they would never leave it out, right? Hmm. So specific things about the South, um, I would say as far as the Civil War, it's a big misconception that 
uh, people in the South still, you know, wish it would have ended differently. And that, that is untrue. We're definitely taught that slavery is wrong and that um, the moral the morals were on the side of the union um, and we don't wish it to be different. Um, but certainly still people uh, hold in the back of their minds, you know, remnants of that time. He's careful not to argue that his experience growing up was in any way representative of everyone growing up in the South, of course, but really helped me to start thinking that perhaps there's not as much a division narrative, even here, as people seem to argue, between the two parts of the U.S., which are most often placed in opposites to each other. So, let's get back to that narrative. Since the turn of the century, the radical notion that people of color could be people too had been gaining momentum across the globe. Slavery was abolished throughout the British and French empires by 1833 and 1835, respectively, and the U.S. ships were forbidden from participating in the transatlantic slave trade from the year 1794, and the 1787 Northwest Ordinance outlawed new slavery in the Northwestern United States. In light of these developments, and the growing sentiment that slavery was just plain morally wrong, Missouri's application in 1820 to Congress to become a slave state shows the growing conflicts between the northern slave-free states and the southern slave and plantation states by the mid-1800s. Missouri was accepted, but Maine was recognized as a free state in order to keep the power balance between the two camps in Congress. And with the 1860 election of abolitionist politician Abram Lincoln for president, slave state after slave state seceded. So the Civil War happened because the South was like, we want more rights, which kind of translates to, we don't want to give up our slaves and we're scared they're going to make us do that. Um, and so several Southern states tried to secede, called themselves the Confederacy. And the Union, led by Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, um, who is widely regarded to be one of our best presidents, but also I would point out that like was also directly responsible for the U.S.-Dakota War that I was just talking about. So, like, history is complicated. At the height of this raging war, in 1863, President Abram Lincoln made a speech containing 272 strong words on the battlefield of Gettysburg, which was to go down to history, and, uh, yep, quoted by Page in the American Creed. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth, on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. From these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. 1863 was the Emancipation Proclamation, and that was Abraham Lincoln declaring um, the freedom of the slaves. This was a really interesting point in my education because that was more or less the first time that um, slavery in the U.S. had really been formally acknowledged. It came up from time to time. We always kind of skirted over the fact that people like George Washington, the founder um, or sorry, the father of our country, um, who everyone respects so much, had slaves. It's something that's kind of seen as, well, that was something that you did at that time. Um, we didn't really talk about how problematic that actually was. It was 
implicitly acknowledged, but there was very little explicit conversation. To clarify, it was problematic. First of all, slavery in the United States existed and was an integral part of society since 1619, when Dutch settlers brought enslaved Africans along to the settlement of Jamestown. Colonial North America's slave trade began only 12 years later when the first American slave carrier, Desire, was built and launched in Massachusetts. They named the damn slave carrier Desire. From 1790 until 1808, when slave importation was prohibited, 88,000 slaves disembarked in the United States, mostly imported from Africa. In total, an estimated 12.5 million humans were enslaved and forcibly shipped away from their homes during the centuries of transatlantic slave trade. This, however, is not talked about in the U.S. history classes up until the point when the slaves were emancipated. We committed this wrong, but ultimately in the end, we made up for it because in the end we still freed the slaves. Um, we didn't give them full rights for decades after, but they were now no longer property of um, white landowners in the South. And that's when we talk about it, because that's the U.S. doing something good. That's the U.S., you know, righting a wrong that they committed earlier, and ultimately they come out on top. After this, Page's narrative and the American creed stops. The U.S. has ended up on top, freed itself from its tyrannical masters, pulled itself up by its bootstraps, defied the course of history by democratically ratifying a constitution— and done away with old sins like slavery and domestic division. United America moves forward in the glorious and steady legacy of strong and steadfast leaders like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Nothing complicated there, right? On August 3rd, 1914, the major powers launched the war nobody wanted. It was to be the most devastating of all time. In the first month, the great armies clashed in a series of murderous battles, finally ending in a stalemate stretching from Switzerland to the North Sea. This is the story of the man who first raised the American flag, carried it across the new continent that was to be our own United States. He opened the West and protected the pioneers, laid the iron rails across the plains and over the hills. He built the Panama Canal. Our protector in time of war, our counselor in time of peace. He is the American soldier. In 1917, the year Page compiled the American's Creed, the U.S. had just joined the First World War. The world, which had seemed to be moving forward morally for a good half a century, away from wars and dreadful conflicts, had collapsed into chaos. Tsarist Russia had fallen at the hands of the Bolsheviks, and Europe was a single complicated labyrinth of trenches, mud, and death. The American people perhaps needed something uncomplicated, something that still stood as a moral compass to believe in. The creed could give them just that, a moral progression of good deeds done to the world. But things were changing. In many ways, the Great War was to become the catalyst for changes on just about every level of society. Wars tend to do that. The narrative of pulled-up-by-the-bootstraps America being unanimous and canonical had reached its peak, because more voices were being lifted and valued. We call it the Roaring Twenties because, like, 
economy was booming. There were a lot of gangs, so I guess, but they were like running alcohol things. So I guess everyone was having a lot of fun. There was also like this kind of boom of arts activity, especially in African-American communities. Like you talk about like Harlem in New York in the twenties being like kind of the birthplace of jazz, um, poetry, and like kind of also with the rise of like movies with sound and like kind of a sexual revolution, like a mini sexual revolution where like women are cutting their hair shorter and showing their legs and like that's this kind of interesting thing as well. I know, it's pretty scandalous. Great Gatsby, um, Harlem, Langston Hughes, Thoroughly Modern Millie, if you know musical theater, like that era. The Roaring Twenties was a short time of prosperity loosening of societal norms and the start of commercial America, which was to make its return after the Depression and the Second World War. Everything from fashion to music to transportation was changing as media, art, industries, and norms were reevaluated. We were wealthy, you know, jazz music and dancing and women exploring their social liberations because they had to work during World War One, and now they've, like, earned some money and entered the workforce, and that was a kind of a big deal. It was kind of a big deal, because for the first time, it wasn't just a white men who started getting better lives. And then it all comes crashing down in the stock market crash. The Great Depression of the 1930s, following the Wall Street crash in 1929, placed most of the social progress on hold. Uh, the Great Depression happens, the stock market crashes, for a reason that I still don't fully understand because I haven't ever taken economics. Honestly, same. But basically, the Great Depression was a worldwide economic depression which lasted for 10 years. In short, what caused the depression was overvaluation of the stock market in a time of rising unemployment and declining production. Essentially, a bubble of prices when both supply and demand was failing, which burst on Black Tuesday in 1929. Farmers lost their farms, people lost their savings and banks went bankrupt. And by 1933, in the height of the Depression, unemployment had risen from 3 to 25 percent. Thousands packed their lives in carriages and cars and drove westwards towards California in the false hope that the Golden State would have jobs and futures waiting for them. It did not. But basically, World War II in the 40s pulled us out of that because war is great for the economy. The Depression-time New Deal and wartime manufacturing of weapons, transportation, vehicles, and general military equipment created jobs where there had been none before, and groups of people that had been previously excluded from the job market were pulled into the workforce in the name of homeland security. What had been initiated during the First World War was finished during the Second. Women of all colors and races were pulled into the industries as a result of the wartime labor shortage, and the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940 required all men between the ages of 21 and 45 to register for the draft before being shipped across the ocean to fight in yet another war. And it took six years before the survivors would come home. President Harry Truman, in a speech to the nation on September 2, 1945. My fellow Americans... Supreme Allied Commander General MacArthur and Allied representatives on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. 
the thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There, on that small piece of American soil, anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. From this day, we move forward. We move toward a new era of security at home. With the other United Nations, we move toward a new and better world of cooperation, of peace, and international goodwill. God's help has brought us to this day of victory. With his help, we will attain that peace and prosperity for ourselves and all the world in the years ahead. The post-war time was a time of prosperity, of improvements. The two wars had changed many things, especially in the way which Americans view their government. The fiscal policies of the New Deal, along with the unprecedented interventionist foreign policies of the First and Second World Wars, paved way for big government U.S., where the government played a more active role as the overseer of the economy. Increased wages and more humane working hours helped the working class become the middle class. A GI Bill was created, giving those who fought in the war the opportunity to become homeowners. Most of them. Most of you, emphasis on most of you, who fought in the war can have access to a, can buy a home. And so the suburbs kind of happened, and that was a really big deal in terms of the creation of this, like, nuclear family, American dream, um, white picket fence image. Like, you know, 2.5 kids in a suburban home and the mom wears the, the flower polka dot dress and bakes for the husband who comes home. And like, that's, that's where that was born, was in the 1950s. Um, consumerism happened um, in a way that it hadn't before. Um, television was a really big deal in pushing this the image of Americanness. I think that's when you kind of see like what people consider like the good old days of the United States is often the 1950s. But as usual, not everyone was part of this economic and social lift. When the soldiers came back home after the war, great efforts were made to keep women and non-whites in their original place, at home, separated. The GI Bill that helped so many war veterans to buy homes in the post-war economy and to get an education systematically discriminated against people of color and per definition excluded all women. As many got it much better, those who didn't were left wondering why the American dream of the 50s was only for the white man. 100 years had passed since the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, but for millions of Americans, no great change had been seen. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. 
In his historic 1963 speech, I Have a Dream, Martin Luther King gives voice to the frustration of the millions. And this growing frustration was to give rise to the long 60s, the period between 1955 and 73, which lifted voices to an historical status which had never been heard before. Rock songs, poetry readings, experimental theater, teach-ins, conferences, and chants are all part of the post-60s narrative, which shapes our understanding of what the reactionary decade of the 60s meant for American society. In the 1960s, you see the eruption of the feminist movement and of the civil rights movement. You see the peace protests during the Vietnam War, the American Indian movement addressing issues caused by the white settling and the historical displacement of native peoples, the gay rights movement calling for acceptance and an end to discrimination of homosexuals, as well as socialist student movements and environmentalist movements. Women, African Americans, Native Americans, minorities, those up until now denied a voice in the history books suddenly are given a central and for the first time, an active role in the stories we tell of the making of history. The multiple narratives broke the spell of the canonically accepted story of the American people's road to greatness. So, to whatever extent one can ever argue that a country has one single unifying story, that notion largely shattered after the social revolutions of the 60s. Or did it? Remarks of the president after signing of the education bill from the front lawn of the old schoolhouse on the LBJ Ranch in Texas, April 11th, 1965. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome to this uh, little school of my childhood uh, many of my former schoolmates and many who went to school to me at Catula and Houston and San Marcos, as well as some of my dear friends from the educational institutions of this area. My attorney general tells me that it's legal and constitutional to sign this act on Sunday, even on Palm Sunday. And what act was that? Well. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act was passed by the 89th United States Congress and signed into law in 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson as part of his war on poverty. It's the most extensive and most far-reaching federal legislation affecting education ever passed in the United States Congress. The act is about 400 pages long and treats everything from allocations to the right to education. Really far down... In Part F, under General Provision, this tiny but super important section is hidden in plain sight. Section 1604, 20 U.S.C. 6575. Prohibition against federal mandates, direction, or control. Nothing in this title shall be construed to authorize an officer or employee of the federal government to mandate, direct, or control a state, local education agency, or school's specific instructional content, academic achievement standards and assessments, curriculum, or program of instruction. In plain English, the federal government can have nothing to do with what's taught in American schools. Why is that interesting? 
Well, if the federal government can have nothing to do with what's taught in American schools, don't you think it's funny that Onda, Izzy, and Marlette, as well as Kobe, coming from different types of schools in different states, pretty much as far away from each other as possible, tell virtually the same story of American history? It starts in 1620 with the arrival of the Puritans on the Mayflower, they settle the 13 colonies and get dissatisfied with English rule, they dump a bunch of tea in the Boston Harbor, declare themselves independent, and win the revolution. The Constitution is written, but is based on inhumane practices of slavery, which lead to the Civil War, the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression outshine World War I, World War II in importance, after which the consumerism of the 50s and revolutions of the 60s and the narrative. There were, of course, some differences in their narratives. Marlette, growing up in a state on the Mason-Dixon line, learned more about the Civil War than Onda had. Onda, on the other hand, told me about the Oregon Trail and the West War's expansion. Izzy had the most thoughts on the social movements of the 60s stemming from high school years, but save the last bit, it's all pretty much copy-paste from the American Creed written by Page in 1919. The story of the great men of the past, the national heroes. Yet, Marlette went to a private Catholic school in Maryland, Izzy to an all-girls feminist charter school in Minnesota, and Onda to a rural public high school in Washington State. Their education systems and locations could not be less connected within the bounds of the national borders. So, if there are no official national standards or curricula, why do these stories sound so incredibly similar? Well, the reality is that we live in a world dominated by the divisions of nation-states. We exist in the contrast between them, and we're in constant need of the perpetuation and telling of myths and narratives in order to keep seeing the world in this manner. The United Nations have special seats for each member nation. The name of the nation on your passport decides where you can go, and I'm sure I'm not the only one rooting for my own national team during the Olympics and World Cup. And honestly, it's all so arbitrary. There's nothing pointing to there being a biological or a genetic reason for me to, quote, feel Swedish. I don't even know what that would mean. What it does mean is that something else is nudging us to feel connected to our passports, music, literature, and, uh, yeah, history. The only reason why Anna feels linked to what has been said to happen in the Boston Harbor on December 16, 1973, is because she's been told that it's important for her personally to know that. I uh, asked her about it. I think that it's important to have that history because it is the same country and we fall under the same institutions, we fall under many of the same values. Um, and so talking about that is a very important part of Washington state history. Um, those were the foundations that gave rise to Washington as an American state as we know it today. It is the same country. It's the same nation. Washington State, Maryland, and Minnesota all send representatives to Washington, D.C. They all pay federal taxes, watch the same national TV, listen to this American life, etc. And since they are part of the same nation and institutions, they need to know about what's been canonically accepted as the foundation for the existence and character of the nation. The reason why 42 of the U.S. 50 states require students to take at least one unit of American history in order to receive high school diploma is because some proficiency in the national narratives and myths are detrimental to the sense of national belonging, and quite frankly for the functioning and existence of the state itself. 
And even though a lot of the governmental structure in the US circles around the self-determination of states, as manifested in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act from 1965, expressing the prohibition of federal government to mind the state's businesses, the US is still a nation in its entirety. But the US is a very big nation, and when people stop conscribing to the national narrative, that's when secession movements such as Cascadia Now, Yes California, and Texas Nationalist Movement emerge as louder voices in the political landscape, since they see their area or culture as distinct. However, as long as all Americans, Eastern or Westerns, Northern or Southern, see themselves as Americans, belonging to an exceptional line of U.S. history, the U.S. as a nation remains safe and strong. Therefore, the narratives among all states remain relatively similar, even though the federal government has no formal state in the curriculum development. That's why Onda, Izzy, and Marlette all learn from similar timelines, events, and people. That's also why Page's American Creed was adopted by the Congress as an official resolution, and why President Donald Trump's speech about the American saga of the heroic 13 colonies resonate with Americans from coast to coast and why the Make America Great Again hats are worn all over the vast nation that's the United States of America. You've been listening to Collecting Histories and me, Clara Erickson. For further reading, bibliographies, and some cool graphics, visit our website, collectinghistories.com. This series is part of my capstone project for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. Thanks to Professor Grace Woodsbucket, my advisor, to Mika Lanier and Anda Yoshina for their invaluable feedback, and to my mom and dad for patiently listening to my rants and feeding me while my brain is on intellectual adventures of his own. Thanks to Nikesh Dresta for helping me manage social media and other things I don't understand. Special thanks to Anda, Izzy Rumanier, Marlette Sandoval, Hannah McMain-Cole, Kobe Anderson, and Meredith Ramba for agreeing to be interviewed for this episode and turning off their ACs for the benefit of my microphone. Also thanks to Ben Chen, Eric Lin, and Trent Homeyer for lending their voices to the great men of the past. If you like this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps a lot. And follow us on social media. The links are in the description. Music credits are available in the bibliography. See you next week.